tonight on What Would JV Do? I was going to say, who do I have to screw around here to get a promotion? But obviously, it's Captain Caleb. Does Jess hate this party? And guess who's out running? Whatever. He drowned in the pool. I need to get back to football. This is our first bum, 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 bum. Do you have any unsolved murders? We have this mystery writer. She can solve them for you. Are you saying that that's not Caleb McCallum? Oh, no. Not Eggman. Oh, Jessica. Jessica. No, Jessica. No, Jessica. Welcome to What Would JB Do? A Murder She Wrote fan cast. I am Emily Rose, and I would attend a literary costume party dressed as Elizabeth Bennett. And I'm Kelsey, still skeptical that eggs, milk, lemons, and baking soda actually clean anything. We are two white women who've known each other since we were eight years old. But we haven't lived in the same city since we were 18. So... We're meeting here weekly to bond over our shared love of murder, she wrote. And in the process, we explore pop culture, history, shifting social norms, sexism, racism, elements of storytelling, the entertainment industry, and a whole lot more. Each of our episodes is a deep dive. And we mean deep dive. Into one single episode of Murder, She Wrote. But instead of progressing chronologically through all 12 seasons... We're serving you collections of episodes grouped by theme. This is partially because we're Murder, She Wrote nerds who enjoy thinking critically about the series. And partially because we didn't want to have to wait years to introduce you to some of our favorite later season characters and episodes. So strike that. Reverse it. This is entirely because we're Murder, She Wrote nerds. Yes, and if you are a Murder, She Wrote nerd yourself... If you want to learn the art of storytelling. If you're fascinated by how pop culture influences society. And how society influences pop culture. Then you have found your people. In our last episode, we started covering the pilot episode of Murder, She Wrote, called The Murder of Sherlock Holmes. In it, we met our heroine, J.B., we know her nephew has gotten her mystery novel published without her consent, and now she's famous, and thus far she does not like it. To make up for her horrendous experience, Preston Giles, the person in charge of her publishing house, has invited her to his Long Island estate for the weekend. And there he springs on her that there's a costume party, and she manages to find a gorgeous, form-fitting Glinda the Goodwitch ball gown for the occasion. But it is not all fun and games. Her nephew, Grady, discovers a private investigator searching his room, but the P.I. won't reveal any information about why he's there, but does comment that he is deduced that Preston Giles is dressed as the Count of Monte Cristo. And that's where we ended things last time. So let's get back into it. Baxendale has just been escorted out the back way, and now... We go back to the party scene. Jess is being snarky without being snarky to Captain Caleb. He says, you're from Maine, you know about fish. I never want someone to say that to me ever. 
Well, you're not from Maine, so no one will. You're from Kentucky. You know about chicken. No, the thing from Kentucky is you're from Kentucky. You must own a horse. That's the one I always get. That's true. But not about eating horse. Ew. No, I get fried chicken a lot, though. That's just if you're in another country, right? They're like, oh, Kentucky, Kentucky fried chicken. No, I, I get a number of people now when they learn that I'm from Kentucky. They're like, oh, you know, I used to eat Kentucky fried chicken all the time. Like they tell me about their Kentucky fried chicken experience. You should talk about how terrible New York pizza is then. I do because I don't like New York pizza. I like Detroit pizza. What is Detroit pizza? Square, square, square. Oh, to my mind, Detroit pizza is like deep dish light. Mm, that doesn't sound good. I'm sure everyone who's listening from Detroit is losing their minds. But it's like so buttery. It's like this thick crust. It's so buttery. It's a lot of sauce. Lots of pep. Lots of pepperoni. Yeah, that's much better than New York pizza. New York pizza is kind of just like, well, we have some cheese. We have some dough. If we make it really big, people will be like, oh, this is great. Spot on. They're like, oh, we we lost the tomatoes. Sorry. But JB says, he says, have you ever eaten Captain Caleb's? And she says, oh, yes, Captain. And it is an experience I'll never forget. And that doctor there knows exactly what she's talking about. They exchange a glorious look. I wish I were better at describing looks because there are some looks that happen later on in the episode that I'm like, this is just classic Jess. And it's amazing. Yeah, it's the joy of television. They use the medium. Yeah, they do. They do a really good job. So Louise, the wife of the captain that Grady works for, is drunk and demands to go home. But her drunk is way over the top. It's so ridiculous. So I think this is them trying to plant a red herring for us by being like, she's so over the top drunk. Is she really drunk? Or is this an act to get quote unquote out of the house? That is my theory, because I can't imagine that this actress who had this long, illustrious career is so terrible at this. I imagine she has been drunk a number of times in her life, and this is not how it was. But when Caleb is like, no, I'm not going home, Ashley, the hussy in the pink stepmom outfit, is in the shot. It's literally a triangle, the way that they stage it. And so the idea is that there's a love triangle here, and that... Caleb's wife thinks Caleb wants to stay so he can have some time with his secretary, Ashley. Whatever she is, the Maleficent, maybe we decided. And I thought she was the secretary this whole time because they say like she started in the steno pool later. But then we see her office later. She's like an executive. Yeah. I was going to say, who do I have to screw around here to get a promotion? But Obviously, it's Captain Caleb. Exactly. Oh, that's why I thought she was the secretary, because in a minute, the pianist starts singing a song about his secretary and the boss. Yeah. So I thought it was her. That song kind of misses me. I think whenever somebody is singing and it's like not 
like later on when there's an audition and I'm supposed to be paying attention to this woman singing terribly unless it's like the center of attention I do not pay attention so I I don't know what he was singing about except I could tell that afterwards he's like oops yes so before that happens which is like a key moment in developing the relationship between the pianist and Ashley Maleficent Hussey, pink lady. Louise is like, well, if you're not coming home with me, then I'm going home, which is drunk for like, bye. So she tries to leave and Jess is like, no, no, don't leave. Don't, you're not in any stage to drive. Like she's trying to be responsible. And then Louise goes out anyway. So Jess is like, Grady, go get her. And shocker. Grady fails. I think it's possible that people might get super strength when they're drunk sometimes just because they can't understand their own limits of their bodies. So maybe she just has like super drunk strength. Also, no, he punched someone. So maybe his hand is a little sore and he's just broken now. He spent all his adrenaline diving into a darkened room, punching an old man. And now he doesn't have any left to get the keys away from, like, a 45-year-old lady. Yeah. And this should be uh, a lesson for all of us that choose your battles wisely. Like, don't expend all of your energy going into a dark room just to punch a, an old man that didn't need to punch in the first place. He wasn't about to fight you. And save it for when there's a drunk lady that you need to wrestle keys away from so she doesn't kill anybody. That's the prime takeaway from this episode, I think. Yes. She knocks Grady to the ground. Grady's just full on lying in the driveway and she roars out in her car. And Jess is like, Grady. She like runs out, of course, gravely concerned. And Grady's like, she's crazy. And I think this is all a big setup for like a red herring. She's the murderer. Watch out for her. She's crazy. I think you're probably right. I definitely didn't get any of that because I wasn't watching as closely. I think like if I had been like, how are they trying to fool me? Maybe I would have. But I was just like, she's drunk. This is fun. (laughs) At this point, like I have fun when I'm watching Jessica Fletcher. But at this point, I've seen it enough that my brain is like, why they do this? Like what's under this? Yeah. How are they telling the story? It's just a new level of enjoyment for me. Yeah, like you're supposed to read a mystery three times to really get it. Because like, I don't know who said this, but it's like a thing. The first time it's so that you get surprised about who did it. The second time is for some reason to appreciate something. I'm doing a really good job with this anecdote. (laughs) And the third time is to like see... No, I don't remember. But each one is a different level of appreciation of a mystery. That makes sense. I've never heard that, but that would make sense as like a reader formula. So we're back to the party and we're talking about Broadway shows. Uh, yeah. And how much does it cost? 250000 I should have said a quarter of a million because that sounds more. A quarter of a million dollars. In 1984. And his fallback is writing country music. He says, if it fails, I can always write for Nashville. I could never tell if that was a slight on Nashville because 
I always assumed that stuff from the south when it's mentioned in like the north is always like ah we're better but then I talked about it with Daniel and he thought just like because Nashville is a well-known song writing hub or something just like he'd just have to sell out and just write the songs he doesn't want to write but I don't know I kind of think maybe the there's that southern bias in there too I agree so now he's singing the song about the secretary and you're getting a glare from Ashley Maleficent who is pouring a drink and he's like, whoa, sorry, I didn't mean to offend you. Because the song is about, like, the secretary is sleeping with the boss. And she's like, no, for months our relationship has been strictly business. And it seemed really genuine, their conversation. So then I was really confused about the relationship we learn about later. Yeah. <laughs> Like, it seemed like he was like, oh, whoops, stepped in it. Sorry. And she was like, no, fuck you. I'm not sleeping with him anymore. And it seemed like a revelation on both parts. But they must already know this about each other. So is this whole thing like a long, drawn out act for the whole party? It could be. Maybe they don't have that kind of relationship. They're just like, money, please. And they don't talk about anything. Yeah, maybe. That's possible. The relationship is very um, on the down low. Like, if you get hauled off to court, probably you don't want to reveal other incriminating things. Is my guess. I've never embezzled anything. I was going to say, I've never, like, embezzled money or passed secrets to my accomplice. So I don't actually know what the accomplice-accomplice relationship is. Maybe our listeners who have embezzled before can let us know about what the relationship with other people they share their money with is like so we can more accurately interpret this scene. Please only send us anonymous embezzler emails. Please don't tell us who you are. I can't handle that level of responsibility in my life. Oh, you can tell me. Okay, Kelsey will be checking the email. If I'm trying to emulate Jessica Fletcher... I need to be getting into as many court cases as possible to where my life is just filled with me having to travel around the country testifying. And why? Why was there no spinoff show of just her doing that, huh? Wouldn't that be interesting to watch? Just courtroom proceedings, sitting, she just waits there for hours until it's her turn to take the stand, and then she leaves and sits in the hotel room and waits. I think that would make for some great television. I wonder if there's ever been a spinoff with the main character from a show. Like, has there ever been a spinoff where the main character... Oh, yes! Um, Golden Palace, the Golden Girl spinoff. Oh, who's in Golden Palace? The Golden Girl spinoff is just them again. <laughs> it's all of them except um, Sophia, I think. I'll double check that. I know it's three of the four of them. I've only seen one Golden Palace episode. So, yeah. I wonder if there are others where the main characters are just like, and now we're doing this other show that's still in the universe of the show we were previously in, and we are still the stars. Well, now, I mean, Sex and the City is getting a reboot. Do reboots count? It's not really a spinoff. I guess it depends what the people making it mean by a reboot. Because like Full House, Fuller House, whatever, that's not really a spinoff. That's just like, hey, we grew up and we're still here. They are very British in that show. It's true. 
that's just my we're still here voice. Anyway, so now we know if you're an embezzler or if you have an encyclopedic knowledge of spinoffs, please get in touch. Please. Thank you. So we've started talking about Caleb again at this party. And this is a good time to mention he's missing from the party. Where could he be? Has anyone seen him? Is someone else missing too? Maybe you haven't seen Little Red Riding Hood either. Maybe she disappeared. The woman who got pinched, fondled, whatever that was. Ugh. 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 Except it seemed so high. It really just seemed like he was like tickling her back or something. And she was like, oh, my back. I don't know if that's because it was 1984 and they thought like 45-year-old women would be watching the show in Kansas or something. Or if it's for the camera. She is red riding hood. She's wearing a cape. So in order for us to know that it's happening for the camera, they have to they have to show movement. Yes. It was weird. Yes. And unpleasant. <laughs> so now we know Red Riding Hood and Captain Caleb, interestingly, both haven't been seen. And Ashley is so overwhelmed about this whole situation that she she spills her drink on her costume and it is not visible. Yep. This whole moment becomes a whole alibi. You cannot see the spill. And I guess that's because they had to do multiple takes and they were like, well, we can't put you in a new Queen Maleficent outfit every time. But it's it's a little, I think it's like one of those moments when the production values like a little bit undermine the story. Does champagne stain? I would like our listeners to let us know if you've spilled champagne on things and if you're an embezzler, if champagne stains things. But please, if you're not an embezzler, do not let us know about champagne. Yes, only crossovers. I don't want to read all of those emails. So Jess loses her minds over this. (laughs) She physically grabs this woman, like puts her hands on this woman and is like, we have to get that off right now. Come with me. Let's go. And I was like, does Jess hate this party? Because <laughs> that's what I would do. Like, if someone spilled a bunch of chips, I would be like, oh my God, this is going to ruin your carpet. I will go buy vacuum filter so we can clean this. And I would leave. So I didn't know if this was a strategy for like, get me out of here. It seems possible because the guy that she came to the party with is nowhere to be seen at the party too so she's just surrounded by all these people and to be fair she has uh better people skills than i do certainly so she could probably enjoy herself but yeah i never thought of that that it was just like oh no i better help you with this immediately even if it takes two hours or something oh no it's really over the top they have to sell that alibi on the front end so that it makes sense later and you remember it but like from my perspective like it's not very well written it's not a meaningful reason for her to be half naked with a woman in a room 30 (laughs) minutes later could you please tell me what would be reasonable for that scenario that is a great i mean okay so one time i went to a former friend's one-time husband's birthday party (laughs) long story and At the time, I had no money, and I was like, great, I can get an entree for $12. And then everybody at the party started ordering wine for the table. 
and the bill started getting higher and higher. And I was like having an anxiety attack. And then the woman in front of me knocked a bottle on me. So the entire bottle of wine just went on me and my dress. And I like booked it for the bathroom and was sort of taking it off in order to rinse it in the bathroom. And my friend came in and was like, well, since that happened to you, they felt really bad. They comped your bill. Shoo. So I didn't end up having to pay. <laughs> I got lucky. But that's that was me and another party friend half naked in a bathroom together. What kind of wine was it? Was it red or white or rosé? Well, rosé wasn't really a thing then. I have no idea, but it was definitely red. It was very dark. So yes, an entire bottle of wine spilled on your clothes. That's my threshold. But they don't just need this for the alibi. They need it so that she has a reason to go in the kitchen. That is why they need this more than anything. Can I, we will talk about the more important thing in that scene, but I would love to read to you. I wrote down the recipe that she uses to get the stain out of the dress. Go. It is two eggs, half a lemon, baking soda, and milk. And I am pretty sure that if you mix all of those things together, it is not going to do anything for anything except make your dress very stinky because when the milk dries, because you can't get the milk all the way out, you're going to have a spoiled milk-smelling dress. Yeah, it sounds like that makes a scone. It doesn't sound like that makes a stain recipe. It doesn't make anything. Do not turn that into a scone. It is nothing. <laughs> that tells you how much I know about baking. I was like, mm, lemons and milk and eggs. I think that makes a scone. Don't eat it. I won't. Don't worry. But yeah, she's like cracking the eggs while he's chatting with her. I was fairly impressed because I know that Angela Lansbury has been acting since she was like 16 or something. And so I know that she is not a normal person. But I was impressed with like, her cracking those eggs and juicing the lemon, like that's something she's done in her life. So I was like, yeah, I believe this. Yeah, apparently she can still be seen in LA at the farmer's market. Whoa. Getting her own fresh vegetables. She should not go to the farmer's market. There's a pandemic. In the before times, not like yesterday. Oh, okay. It was something she was known for. They would be like, if you go to this farmer's market, you might be able to catch it on the library. So she, um, what does she say? Oh, she's a frugal Yankee. So she's showing her frugal Yankiness by expending milk and eggs. Two eggs. When you could probably just run it under cold water. Or like use soda water or something. I think, so if we're following, if we're following this theory that she did this to escape the party, she's probably just like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Let's just grab some eggs and lemon and milk. And if I mix it up, it'll like I know what I'm doing and then we'll go from there <laughs> no I feel like that can't be in the Jessica Jessica Fletcher n never doesn't know what to do that's true she's like my ceiling is leaking I have 27 pots to catch the leaks and I'm gonna hire local roofer Mark Bigglesby to fix <laughs> my roof like she has a plan and she knows what's going on and then she fixes the guy's feet later in this episode. That's true. So yeah, I think this recipe is real. Real in that universe, maybe. <laughs> it's real to her. I don't think she's making it up. I think, you know, some, either someone in her church group, we don't hear about just going to church, but I imagine there is a group of church ladies 
that she is in contact with. They gave it to her or her Aunt Martha on her father's cousin's side gave her that recipe. That's likely, yes. Anyway, we've talked about this recipe for like an hour. It's the most important part. But we are getting some sneaky information while this is happening. So she's bodily pulling Ashley into the kitchen to the refrigerator to get things. And this man that she's known for like a day, Preston, is on the phone. He's saying, oh, yes, I understand. I'll see what I can work out. And she goes, who was that? (laughs) Is it any of her business? I'm going to go with no. He's the head of a publishing house. But I am going to take that strategy now. And anytime anybody gets off the phone anywhere, no matter who they are, whether or not I've met them, I'm going to say, oh, who is that? And then maybe I'll catch them at something that I can use to further myself. Like embezzling. I'm not asking for embezzlers to email us to get tips or anything. It's definitely not that. Nobody (laughs) worry. So she asks who it is. And then she says something like, surely you're not working on a Saturday night. It's like, I'm sorry. He's the head of a publishing house. This whole party is work. He is networking his way to more book deals and more this, that, and the other. Like, I don't know. It just seemed really bizarre to me that she's just like, Tell me who you're on the phone with. Tell me about your personal business. And he says it involves her. What are the odds of that? <laughs> Maybe it's just an example of how she is not from the go-go New York 80s and how she's like, in our small town, we just sit on our porches and drink sun tea on Saturdays. That's very possible. So he tells her that it is a very persistent reporter from the New York Times, and he, the reporter, insists on interviewing her on Monday morning. And he says, I told him that Jessica left for Pango Pango? I think it's somewhere in the South Pacific, but I'm not 100% sure. I haven't been a travel agent for a long time, so I don't know. (laughs) Bringing it back to life skills. So it seems kind of like a throwaway. He's like, this reporter called. He wants to interview you. I told him to get lost. Told him to get lost, buddy. I'm from New York. I was like, why are you calling me? If that had happened, it would have been, this scene would have been way better. But no, it was some stuffy mid-Atlantic accent, man. Everybody, everybody in this show has mid-Atlantic accent. Like, no matter where they are, nearly everybody has a mid-Atlantic and I know that's just like, that's how people were trained. They had elocution lessons and everything, but it's very interesting. Yeah, Ashley is like the big exception. So Jess has pulled her physically from the party to the kitchen. Now Jess has made a recipe that seems like it will be absolutely useless. And Jess pulls her physically out of the room to go and get the stain out. And It's like, we get it. Like, down home lady is down home. It's (laughs) laying it on a little thick. Yep. Definitely. (laughs) So then they're back to the main party. Jess is no longer there. The pianist is hamming it up. They start making what they think are hysterical Rogers and Hart, Rogers and Hammerstein jokes. (laughs) Which I think probably goes to show that the writers of this show wrote for theater or are in the theater industry as well that would make sense yeah 
like he makes like a dig at the musical pipe dream i, I don't know how many people in america were gonna get that joke but i did not he thinks it's very funny i have heard musicals i have never heard of pipe dream well there's the joke i guess that america would be like we've never heard of it it must have been terrible I would have fully expected it to be uh, Starlight Express. That's the joke that I would have gone with. Because I've only heard one song from Starlight Express. I know that people wear roller skates in it and that they're all like train cars and whatever. And it's just uh, the rest of the music could be great and everything, but it just sounds like the most absurd musical I've ever heard of. And so it would be a great but of a joke. It probably goes to show that the audience is much older. Mm-hmm. Rogers and Hart is like coming out of vaudeville. It's before Rogers and Hammerstein. Yeah. So it's like, hey, 60-year-old ladies, here's a funny joke. But at the end of this scene, he says he can only stay till four. It's very important later on. That's also ridiculous. I played a party, a Christmas party. Well, not last year because last year was 2020. So 2019, I played a Christmas party, and by 10.30, I was like, my back, please, please let me leave my back. No longer take this. And if he's going to be playing show tunes for four or five hours straight. But we need that clue for later, Kelsey. Got to get that alibi in there. Woo. So then they're cutting to a clock. Are you good at analog time? Because I am not. And it makes me really angry when they do this in shows or movies. Well, I remember what time it was when it's morning again, but uh, I don't remember what time it was when they changed the clock. Yeah, it wasn't long enough on it for me to figure out what time is it supposed to be right now. And then it just fades into the new clock. And I was like, what the hell? Like, I'm not used to reading time that way anymore. So it was very disconcerting for me. And I hate when they do that in movies because I'm like, I'm not fast enough to understand what you're trying to tell me in this moment. (laughs) So I don't know if that scene is supposed to be happening at the time of the murder, before, after. I think because she is with Ashley cleaning off Ashley's dress that it is supposed to be happening right around the time of the murder. Because then everyone starts singing, and that's loud. That makes sense. Okay, so we have established a timeline that right now, it is between 11 and midnight, let's say. Because that's when they establish the murder is happening later. And we know that some people are, and some people are not on camera. So Caleb is not there. Red Riding Hood is not there. Piano Man is there. Jess and Ashley are not there. Louise has already left. Yes. And we don't see Grady or Kit or Preston Giles. So they're kind of summing up. Here's where everyone is at the time this is happening. And then we cut to 10 after 6 in the morning. And guess who's out running? Through a forest. She's like dodging branches. There's acres of mown lawn. And we've seen people driving. So we know there are roads she could run on. But no, she is running through the forest well as you have pointed out to me one time when i was telling you about a peace pilgrim and how she would just walk across the united states on the roads and how she didn't get murdered by a serial killer perhaps jess is like i'm not running on the road i could get murdered by a serial killer 
So she's going in the woods to where she would know if someone were following her. And there are just like lots of traps that the serial killer could fall into. Because we know she has a, a mind for murder. So she could just always be strategizing wherever she is. That's possible. So she's avoiding serial killers by running through a stand of trees. And she comes out at the driveway where Louise, the drunk lady from the night before, tells her she's in no mood to be lectured. Why would Jess lecture her? Because she knows she wasn't supposed to drive drunk. She knows this. But Jess is a random person. Well, maybe... In 84, there was this big thing where you were like, if some rando drives drunk, you better lecture them. Mm -mm -mm -mm. (laughs) So maybe they're like best friends now because Louise did help her find the costume for the party. So they're the best of friends now. And Jess was like, if you ever drive drunk, this is when they were trying to find dresses for Jess to wear. If you ever drive drunk, I am going to give you such a lecture I don't care if it's 6.10 in the morning. That is the best explanation I've heard thus far. (laughs) So random woman you met yesterday comes out of the woods in a tracksuit and you're driving up the gated entrance of this home in the same clothes you wore last night. And you're like, I feel like shit. I don't want to be lectured. And Jess is like, how about a cup of coffee? So now they're besties and they're going to go into breakfast, I guess. But the important part is that Louise is like, I'm here because I came to see if Caleb stayed over. He didn't come home last night. Dun, dun, dun. Except I would like to point out that later on, she says, I drove to the lake and I parked my car and I just kind of passed out. So how does she know if Caleb came home or not last night? Hmm? Exactly. I'm 100% with you. Once I heard Her explanation of where she was, I was like, wait, does she know that he's actually not at home? Because she doesn't say, like, swung by my house, didn't see my husband. Yeah. She didn't change her clothes. Yeah, exactly. But now we know. Caleb, sim missing. And Jess says something really cute. Because Louise says, I came to see if he slept over. And Jess goes, well, I wouldn't know about that. He's very good. Like, the mainest way of saying, like, (laughs) I did not sleep with your husband. Oh, that's what you took it to mean. That's really funny. What did you think she meant? Just, like, she's not a gossip or, like, she doesn't pay attention to philandering husbands, so she doesn't, she doesn't know. I want a bumper sticker that's, like, I break for whatever, but it says, what did you just say? (laughs) I don't have time for philandering husbands. I want that on a bumper sticker. So they're having this chat through the car window, and then we hear the biggest reaction. I wasn't sure if you wanted to do a scream. Oh, no. I timed it. They do 20 seconds uninterrupted of Kit being hysterical. 20 seconds before anyone says, like, oh, Kit, calm down. 20 seconds. Wow. I mean, she's not screaming the whole time, but it's still just her flipping out and being like, Jessica, Jessica, not Jessica. Oh, my God, Jessica. (laughs) She sounds like a familiar spirit instead of like a 23-year-old woman. (laughs) And it's from that point on that she becomes the worst character 
in the whole episode because the, from then on out, she's just like running towards Jessica. It's like, Jessica, oh my God, Jessica, wait. I didn't even think about that until you mentioned it just now. She does have, she has multiple other moments where she's like planning Jess's itinerary or like telling them about Ashley's rise to fame. She's not only running and screaming, but she does do that at least two more times. Yes. I didn't hate her as much as you did. I didn't hate her at all. That's quite all right. We can be two different people. We do not have to be a hive mind for this podcast. Thank goodness. I honestly thought the weirdest part of that whole scene is that who is in their bathing suit in April in New York at 6 a.m. outside in a pool? After having just partied the night before, like, presumably she's hung over. What is she doing? I don't know. It seemed so incongruous. Apparently everybody was up till 4 a.m., but here she is at 6, fresh face, like in her bathing suit. Ready to go for a dip next to the shotguns. Yeah, where you keep shotguns, of course. Like I said. That's uh, rich people, you know, you got to be in the pool shooting skeet. If rich people who shoot skeet in pools could reach out to us and confirm that, and also if you all are embezzlers, which let's admit there's probably a big crossover there, could you email us, please? Thank you. <laughs> I really can't wait. So Kit is screaming her face off, and we do get an up-close shot. What am I trying to say? A close-up on her face. She screams for Jessica. I'm not 100% sure why Jessica should have been running. I don't know. She starts screaming for Jess. So, of course, Jess runs over. And what is in the pool is a body. Sherlock Holmes. The body. Sherlock Holmes. Is wearing a costume. That's right. Sherlock Holmes. And we talked about this a little bit in the intro. There is an actual shotgun on the ledge of the pool and there are blood stains and there's blood on the shotgun and of course louise being the person in the car also runs over and jess is like no you know under the impression that it's caleb in the pool because caleb was sherlock holmes in case we have forgotten at this point caleb was sherlock holmes yes that's the crux of the mystery so thank you for putting that in there but grady couldn't stop louise from driving away and jess can't stop louise from seeing the body louise is unstoppable except when she gets arrested <laughs> but that's that's way later so then we have the coroner taking the body away and we meet our first police force our first murder she wrote police force and these are small town cops and the deputy is on the radio and he says unofficially it's the seafood guy, but the chief, whom they all say is incompetent later, he's like, he doesn't want to officially identify him until we know for sure. I'm like, that seems fairly competent. Yes, yes, it does. He's probably dealt with more murders than you might think, though. I would assume that rich people either murder or get murdered at a pretty high rate, so he's probably pretty used to that. Yeah. So... The deputy insensitively says the guy got his face blown off, which should be another subtle clue to us that it might not be who we think it is. No face. And then the person on the other end of the radio wants to know how the chief is. And the deputy says he's better now that he's had his coffee 
you know how he feels about trouble on Sundays. Which to me set me up for a really bumbling cop. (laughs) Just because he's not used to working on Sundays or because he needs his coffee to get started or... I think there's a sense that like my job, my job solving a person's, like the taking of someone's life should not interfere with me having a nice, comfortable Sunday. Like that sets me up for someone who is not good at their job. For someone who's like, whatever, he drowned in the pool. I need to get back to football. To be fair, if I were in his position, I would feel that way about Saturdays as well. So he is one day better than me at being the police chief. (laughs) Touche, touche. So then we meet this police chief. He is interviewing not all of the guests, but I guess just the guests who stayed over. Yeah. So like five of them. There were so many people there. Also, the guy who's dressed as the egg is like asleep. Or, sorry, Humpty Dumpty. They call him Eggman in the credits, even though his name, they give the character a name. His name is Arnold, and his fictional character is Humpty Dumpty, but they call him Eggman in the credits. That's wild! I know. Maybe they can't say Humpty Dumpty because. They could have called him Arnold. His character had a name. Yeah, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right. Maybe nobody would have known. Maybe maybe the actor who played Arnold was like, who's Arnold? You you have to let them know that I'm the one in the egg suit. <laughs> um, but he's asleep there in the morning on the couch while the butler's opening the windows, but he's not present for questioning. So I think he did it. <laughs> <laughs> that would be an amazing plot twist. Jess gets to... The end scene, the thing that she thinks is going to happen doesn't happen. And then the egg guy like waddles out in his outfit and he's like, yeah, it was me. It was me the whole time. (laughs) He has like an automatic rifle. He's just shooting it and cackling. (laughs) Should be very different. So this room is filled with people, except noticeably someone's missing from the room. Who's missing? Captain Caleb? he was killed (laughs) i was getting at that jessica's missing oh right jessica's not in the room being questioned and i got so excited because this is our first which when it plays in the show is code for like jess is thinking about something yeah so the chief's interviewing everybody and you see him with like a big like bay window behind him and Jess is just walking across. Bum, 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 bum. He asks another question. And then she comes back. Bum, 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 bum. And he's like, who's this lady? And what is she thinking about under this thinking music? He definitely heard the music. That's what alerted him in the first place, that there was someone behind him. Oh, I was going to ask you, is that clarinet? The bum bums? I can't remember because I can't picture it in my head. But it seems likely. It seems likely that it would be a clarinet. Every time I hear it, I'm like, Kelsey will know if this is clarinet from all her years. So listen next time you can tell me. Okay. But inside the room, they're basically all saying like, yeah, nobody liked that guy. So if you're looking for a motive, yeah, nobody liked that guy. I don't know what it was. It's interesting because he's not like a classic murder she wrote villain. He's not a mean, he's not mean to her. Which is like generally the 
threshold for someone being bad in a Murder, She Wrote episode. Well, they hadn't established that yet. They haven't established that they're going to make the villain mean to Jessica. That's true. You're right. So we learned that everyone really couldn't stand the guy. They're like, yeah, we didn't like him, but we didn't have a reason to kill him. And the wife, Louise, says, except me. And then she's like, but I didn't kill him. At least I don't think I did. What? So she says, like you mentioned earlier, she remembers driving away, woke up behind the wheel at sunup next to the lake, and everything else in between is a blank. So I don't know. Maybe she'd go back to the house and check for her husband. But she doesn't mention, she doesn't happen to mention that. So she was drunk. She wasn't just pretending to be drunk. (laughs) So far, her alibi is really weak. We don't know if she was actually drunk and woke up behind the wheel or if she actually went and killed her husband and used the time to, I don't know, clean the gunshot residue off her hands. And clothes. She doesn't change her clothes. So that's one point in her favor because you know that gunshot residue is all over that dress if she killed him. That's what I have learned from Murder, She Wrote. GSR. Yeah, stuff like that. So Peter Brill's really pissed. He's like, I have to be in town for auditions. I don't know anyone who calls New York City town. <laughs> but maybe in 1984. It's like they just transposed the Cabot Cove language uh-huh. over to this episode. So everyone's miffed that they have to stay at this gorgeous estate longer than they were planning to. Oh, no. And the chief goes outside to find Jess. And can you please tell the people what Jess is doing? Oh, you know, she's just going to climb that lattice there, trying to figure out how to climb the lattice, but also not stepping places she shouldn't step because she knows how to not. In some ways, she knows how to not tamper with a crime scene. But on the other hand, she also is just going to keep going until she figures out whatever it is she's trying to figure out. So maybe she shouldn't have tried to climb that lattice, but... She's clearly a little embarrassed. You were talking about looks earlier. She does like a little little embarrassed look. But she says, oh, I, I didn't disturb any evidence. How would she know? That's true. Unless she did it. <gasps> murder, she wrote. She's always the murderer. I am staunchly against... All of the messaging that says I killed them all with Justin's face on it. She didn't. She's not the murderer, everyone. She's just been cursed. That's right. That's her theory is that she's been cursed. My theory is actually coming up now. So the chief says, I read your book. Because of course he did. Everyone has read Jessica's book. And she says, oh, you did. How nice. And he says, well, I didn't say I liked it. I said I read it. Aww. She didn't even want to publish the book in the first place. That's right. But, but, but. Okay, so here is my theory. Again, he's like trying to lower her self-esteem here by saying, oh, I, I, I didn't like your book. I didn't say I liked it. But then he asks her for her opinion on what's going on. Like immediately he's like, you know things about murder. I guess he knows this from reading the book. He's like, what do you think about my current theory what do you think about the situation and i think if this hadn't happened i mean obviously they wrote the show so they decided what happened but in the universe where someone didn't write this if this hadn't happened to her she would not have gone on to be the star that she was like everyone knows about her because i think 
being a mystery writer who solves crimes. Like that's her publicity gimmick. Not that she does it intentionally, but like that's why she sells the books that she sells because her brand is like, not only do I write mysteries, but I solve them in real life. And nearly every other police detective is like, stop bothering me. (laughs) You're not a police officer. Go away. And this police officer is like, can you solve this case for me, please? And I, my theory is like, if this had gone the other way, if they had written it as a police officer who didn't want her and she had to horn her way in, she would have been like, I'm out of here. The police don't want me. I'm just a little old lady from Maine. Not coming back to New York, not writing another book. See you later. And that's the end of Murder, She Wrote. So I think this moment where he asks for help is crucial to her whole arc. That makes sense. Yeah. But then I also have to think that it's, if that's her brand is a mystery writer who solves murders, how, how messed up it is that the publishing company and her PR people are like, yeah, we're going to push this narrative. This is a great narrative. I mean, it falls into their lap. They would run with that. Yep. So then that leaves me to create another theory that the publishing company just gets all these people killed in later episodes. They're like, we gotta just keep pushing, you know, have her solve more crimes. Well, I think we see that at the end, even with Kit, where Kit works for the publisher and comes in at the end and is like, the police want your help with this other crime. It's like she's been pitching the police. She's like, do you have any unsolved murders? We have this mystery writer. She can solve them for you. Yeah. (laughs) I think it's absurd, but delightful. Just like the show. That's right. So Jess weighs in that she does not think Louise, Caleb's wife, is a suspect. And they talk about the intruder, the private investigator, Baxendale. And Jess is like, I don't think he did it. But she starts talking about the shoes on the body. She's like, Caleb, Mr. Sherlock Holmes, is wearing polished patent leather. But the P.I. had to climb this, like, trellis like I'm doing. He would have had to have worn rubber-soled shoes. So Chief's like, what are you saying? And Jess is intimating that the guy in the pool might, in fact, be the P.I. and not Caleb. Are you saying that that's not Caleb McCallum? And then we hear, it sure as hell isn't. Yes, we get an off-screen voiceover. Dun-dun-dun! Commercial break. Definitely commercial break. Probably, yeah. Oh, I have to say, though, this is totally unrelated to the actual story or anything. This is just, like, the viewing process. So you on the DVDs have no commercials, which is fantastic. On IMDb, they have commercials, but they don't use the commercial breaks. They'll interrupt somebody mid-sentence if they want to and just shove commercials in there. No! Yes. Oh my god, that's a terrible viewing experience. It's not too bad because I've gotten used to it now, but mm-hmm, they don't they don't follow commercial breaks at all. That seems so stupid. Yes. Oh, I guess they're probably on a different contract. Like, you have to show so many in so much time. Yeah, but they could still fit them all, like... Because they still show multiple commercials in a row, so they could just move when they take commercial breaks to actual commercial break times. Oh, that sucks. I'm sorry. It's quite all right. After we get back from the commercial, Shirley, 
we see the real Caleb McCallum, who was wearing the Sherlock Holmes costume the last time we saw him. Now he's just standing there in captain attire. He's very on brand. He knows his brand and he sticks to it for sure. Which makes you wonder why he didn't pick like a nautical themed costume. But it's just because they wanted to make the title of the episode The Murder of Sherlock Holmes. I thought about that also because I was like, he could have been Captain Ahab. like, And he doesn't seem to be someone who cares at all about mysteries like he talks to Jess about fish he doesn't say like Sherlock Holmes my favorite character like you're a mystery writer this is great we never get any of that I don't know it'd be interesting to hear what people who know like the golden age of mysteries and like mystery genre better think is how like are they just trying to show that Jess is a supreme crime solver because she solved the murder of the supreme crime solver Uh, yeah that would make sense to me because like If this were today, I would probably say, like, SEO. (laughs) They wanted everyone searching for Sherlock to find this episode. There wasn't even internet. If they had introduced internet into this episode, everyone would have exploded. I can't wait. I can't wait till internet episodes. Oh, my God. But you're right. We're not there yet. So we have this tete-a-tete between Caleb Callum and the chief. It's very clear that Caleb also lives around here in rich people town and that he hates this chief. Caleb's like, you're stupid or whatever. And the chief's like, why is this guy wearing your costume? And while they're yelling at each other, Louise, the wife, she comes out. She's so happy. Her husband is alive. They do hugging. He makes the best sounds in that scene. He's just like, meh, meh, meh. Oh, you're hugging me. (laughs) (laughs) And the camera goes from the two of them to Jess and the chief, who are so, oh, it's so charming. They're so pleased. They do like, oh, this is romantic looks. And then Louise is like, but also fuck you. And she slaps her husband as hard as he can. And then Jess and the chief like look down. (laughs) They're so embarrassed to be watching it. It's a really cute sequence, I think. Also, I think in, like, TV history, that's the first time that a character has ever said fuck you on screen. Truly a momentous moment. It's the gist, okay? The actress's subtext is fuck you. (laughs) So now we're interviewing Caleb about Baxendale. Do you remember what we learn about this situation? Caleb has... Well, I do not understand the premise first of all because i do not understand business and i do not understand like what people pay money for but he's just like somebody in my office is sneaking out confidential information that's costing me hundreds of thousands of dollars and why i don't know but it is and baxendale had narrowed it down to two people who were at the party And that's why he was there. And he was going to share information with the captain. But that's probably Baxendale in the pool. He probably did. And some of this is supposition. So we know Caleb hired Baxendale. We know there's confidential information leaking out that's costing Caleb, the fish guy, and his business money. But he is just guessing that Baxendale came there 
to pass him the name of the person. Yes. So this is just him being like, he's probably coming. You wanted to tell me immediately who the leak is. But then I think Jess is like running through in her head. She's like, well, then why wouldn't he tell him? Like, something is off here. Something is weird. And like, if the two of you never linked up, if the PI that you hired and you, Caleb, wearing the costume, never linked up to do the handoff, how did he even know what costume you were in and how did he wind up in it? And why is he dead? Because you probably killed him. The ultimate question, yep. So again, we don't know that it's him, but now everybody else is pretty much accounted for and like the PI could be off somewhere else in the world. It wouldn't make narrative sense. We're just some rando. And Baxendale shows up, no, that's not me. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I mean, it could have been Eggman. Oh no! Not Eggman. What if it's just a whole episode of that? <laughs> Where they're like, wait, do we not think it's the PI? And then he's like, sure as hell wasn't. <laughs> and then that just happens like 40 times. Until Jess is like, screw this. I'm going back to Maine. I hope you find the person. It was Kit all along. Actually, when trying to view this through the lens of I've never seen this episode before, I was like, Kit is the next best suspect because she flies under the radar. <laughs> we also don't see her. At the party. Presumably Grady doesn't have an alibi because he's out there making out with her. Woo! But we don't see her. She runs in with all the information all the time. She works for the publisher. She doesn't work for Captain Caleb, but she's the right age that he would, like, prey upon her. Yes. Absolutely. But I, I don't feel like they make her a red herring at all. Like, don't put any attention on her. So I think they actually don't want us to think she's a killer. She's just there to scream. She's there to take care of Grady, is what she's there for. <laughs> so Grady's life just falls apart once Kit's gone. It's just no more no more life for Grady. Yeah, you'd think the fish place would have kept him forever because his aunt found who killed Caleb, but he, he never worked for the fish place. Well, like Captain Caleb says later on in the episode, like everyone knows that there is no captain caleb's without me so maybe the business just totally fell apart okay yes good call so we are foreshadowing that even though captain caleb is alive right now captain caleb is not going to make it through the end of this episode i'm so sorry everyone wink but the alibi he gives for now while he's alive is that he left to quote get fresh air and one of the guests a young lady he met at the party stepped out with him. I love this scene. The chief and Jessica just make the best faces like at each other and then not looking at anybody and just like, oh, sure, guy, if that's your story, I'm not going to say anything, but. Uh... And their skeptical faces lead him to confess that, in fact, no, he spent the night with that woman. Ooh. At a local inn. Whoa. And he says he left the costume in the front closet, which is how it got off of him, because he didn't want to show up at the inn like a, quote, refugee from a costume ball. That phrase is meaningless. I hope he realizes that. I was like, what? <laughs> yeah, it was, it was very absurd. And now everyone knows that he's still a philanderer. He'll philander anything. I think that's how you use that word <laughs> yes so i guess 
the chief lets everyone go because next we see Grady and Kit driving away in Grady's red convertible. <laughs> again, he will never have this standard of living ever again. Well, my theory, I have so many theories. My theory is because we learn in a later episode, I think, uh, I won't say which one, I won't give it away, but Grady's parents died and he went and lived with Jessica and her husband. And so I wonder if he had like a lot of inheritance and kind of just blew it. So he bought this really great car. He got this really nice apartment. And then, whoops, turns out I can't hold down a job, so I can't keep up the standard of living. That's highly possible. Yeah, Pilot Grady is not his final form yet. The second part of my theory about why all of these murders happened to Jessica is that Grady punches Baxendale. And so as part of that curse as revenge, Grady gets involved in so many of these and gets accused of murder so many times because it's all part of the curse. It could very well be because no one has been arrested for murder and cleared as many times as Grady will be by the end of this show. Statistically, he has to have committed at least one of those murders. Yes, it's just that he's not competent enough to have done it. <laughs> it's not like laws of nature. It's like he's weighing the scale. He has his foot on the scale of I couldn't have done this. So everybody's piecing out. Grady and Kit drive away with a little wave in their red convertible. And Preston is sending Jessica back to New York City from Long Island in a limo. And she's like, just put me on the train. I'll be fine. Um, because, you know, she's a Yankee uh, and she's frugal. Um, but Preston wants to know if something's wrong. Jess seems a little distracted. And how would he know? It's true. Well, we're going to have this. This same interaction is going to be mirrored later on a train with someone she knows even less. Yeah. yeah. So I think what we're supposed to take from this is she is so intuitive that other people take her intuitiveness and are able to recognize how she's feeling at any given moment. Well, I am also not capable of hiding my emotions. So maybe she's just like, maybe the way we see it is so it's palatable for us to watch. But like in the reality, she's like, oh, I, oh no, oh, she's just constantly doing that. And anybody who saw her would be like, what's going on there, buddy? I think... The other option is that this might tell us something about the state of mind that Preston is in when he asks her, is something wrong? You seem distracted. Hmm. Maybe he's projecting. He wants to know, what are you thinking about? What are you thinking about when it comes to this murder? <laughs> I hope you're thinking about me, but not in relation to the murder. Hope you're thinking about me in a romantic way, even though someone died the first day we met each other. But Jess says, it's easy to write about murder, but confronting the reality, it's quite a different thing. Just wait like 10 more episodes. And then she's like, oh, murder, what? No qualm. It's true. But I like that we see, because the show is, she, she has to be so comfortable with murder, we never see her really being affected by it unless it's someone she knows, like a friend. Or like, you know, when it's someone in Cabot Cove that she's known for a long time, hint, hint. It's nice that we get to actually see her, like, be new and emotional about it. 
That's true. Because there's one episode, I cannot think of what it is, but it's just like, a person gets murdered, and she's like, but even worse, like, somebody's saying bad things about you or something, like, okay, I guess you're just over people getting murdered now. (laughs) Small potatoes! I love it. So, she's distracted, she's thinking about the murder, she gets in the car and she's leaving but the chief stands in front of the limo with his hands up ostensibly to catch a lift but actually to pick jb's brain i think that fits into your theory well because he's very persistent about getting her help and so she's like oh maybe i have something to offer yes and we see a like a template here Because she says, this is none of my business. And then she proceeds to solve the crime. So this is the first time we see her being genuinely like, this is none of my business. What are you talking about? And then later on, she doesn't mean it when she says that. She's just paying lip service to like, oh, no, (laughs) this is none of my business. And I think so-and-so did it. I've only solved 50 murders. I couldn't possibly. Yes. So she explains to the chief what her problem is. So she says the victim was wearing a costume. So we have two avenues that we have to explore. Avenue number one is that someone thought they were killing Caleb because that person was wearing Caleb's costume. And avenue number two is they knew it was Baxendale all along. And they did want to kill Baxendale. And the chief is like, I have to work on both? She just ruined the first Sunday he's ever had ruined in a long time. Yes. And he says this delightful line. I laughed out loud. I couldn't stop laughing. It brings us full circle. The first time we heard about him was about he doesn't like things on Sundays. And this is the end of us kind of meeting him. He says, between church and football, and the town council never calling me that Sunday is his favorite day of the week. I just love the idea that they created such a deep backstory that this character hates the town council. The chief of police is just like, please don't call me. (laughs) And I just think, like, that's so endearing to me, and, like, I think that shows how good the writing could be on this show. Where it's like, clearly there's a prior relationship between the chief and Caleb, the chief and this town council we've never met. Later, we learn there's some sort of conspiracy to oust him from office. Like, there is deep backstory for this character. Yeah. (laughs) I think they do, in general, they do a pretty good job of their, like, detectives and stuff. They do a pretty good job of giving them all different personalities. Because one episode I watched... If you can believe it, uh, the chief was being condescending towards Jessica. No. But it was in a totally different way than anybody else I'd seen it. And I was like, this is this is a totally different character. I really appreciate that. Yes. One of the things I like about Murder is that it's formulaic, but it uses the formula to create like delightful characters like this, interesting scenarios, ways to learn more about kind of Jess's relationship. It's not like CSI Miami formula, where it's like, this is background television that 
we just need to keep pumping these out because they make money. So at least the first like eight seasons of Murder, She Wrote, I think are very much like this, where there is a formula, but they use that formula to bring us joy. But if I don't get my CSIs, how will I learn what furries are and about people who have diaper fetishes? I mean, none of that happens in Murder, She Wrote. I don't think there is a furry episode of Murder, She Wrote. It's true. But I remember the furry episode of CSI that you're referring to. Referring to. (laughs) So, Murder, She Wrote is taking us from Long Island and the uh, conversation with the chief about Sunday to New York City. So now we're back outside the hotel. We get an establishing shot of the hotel. Grady is reading the newspaper about what happened. And it says, Society Detective Slane. What is a society detective? A private eye who works for rich people? So the newspaper that they're reading is a daily news knockoff. It's called the Daily Star. (laughs) And it costs 25 cents. I can't imagine. I don't know what that is in today's money, but... Probably $400. Probably. So it's Grady again, who really, like, lights the fire under Jess. So Grady says, whoever the detective was spying on is the killer, which is quite astute for someone of Grady's intellect. Poor Grady. And he says, I bet you could solve the case. And Jess says, I'm not a detective. I'm a substitute English teacher. She forgot she wrote a book. And that's what Grady says. You mean a writer. So she doesn't think of herself as a writer yet, even though she's apparently a celebrity at the top of the New York Times bestseller list. Yeah. She did all that press junk. It ruined her life. That's right. So to your point, she says she's going back. She doesn't have use for city life. She doesn't care for anyone here except Grady and Kit. Forgetting someone, Jessica? (laughs) Yes. He's like, even Preston Giles. (laughs) My notes say, ugh, the romance is the worst part of this. (laughs) It generally is in most TV shows. Yeah. So Angela Lansbury does phenomenal acting. She feels embarrassed about her relationship with him or like that she likes him. And Grady, which I find to be rude, says she should call, she should have called Preston Giles to tell him she was going back to Maine. Why? I don't know why. Maybe phone etiquette was more of a different thing in the 80s than now. But it's not like like you don't need to give this guy an opportunity to like race to your hotel room and be like, no, don't leave. I'm here. It's so bizarre. So she's like, don't pout. I'm I'll call in from Cabot Cove. And then they have they have this really cute moment. Like, I make fun of Grady a lot, but Michael Horton is a find. The actor in this role, like, they have amazing chemistry, the two of them. Yeah. Yeah, they do. They're so sweet together. It's like how I feel about um Aubrey Plaza's character and Ron Swanson have the cutest relationship and they never ever because she's significantly younger than him in the show. There's never any like weird sexual tension. It's clearly just like 
adorable. And I love that. And there needs to be more of that. And they have Grady and Jessica have very much that energy. And it's so sweet. Yes. So she says to him, it's unseemly to be fixing up your old auntie with a suitor, which is like really weird language for Jess. And he's like, I wasn't honest. And she's like, you were honest. But she like kisses him on the cheek. They like touch heads when she's laughing. It's so sweet. Yeah. So he says, again, like showing he's not the most intuitive. He's like, I'm sorry you didn't hit it off. She's like, no, Grady, you dumbass. We did hit it off, and that's why I'm sad. <laughs> exactly. No, she says, that's the trouble. You are beginning to hit it off much too well. <gasps> Do we have an idea as how long Frank has been dead? Well, she started writing the book after he died. I would say in the last five years, if not the last, like, three years. Got it. That's just my guess. Yeah, he entirely grew up with Frank. And now I would say he's probably supposed to be in his late 20s in this episode. Yes. So, yeah, I think it has to be, like, in the last five years that Frank died. So it wouldn't be totally out of the realm of possibility that she could pursue another relationship. But she doesn't want to. She had Frank, and Frank was hers. That's like my aunt and uncle. My uncle died when I was in high school, and my aunt was like, George was my person. Yeah. So sweet. So they hit it off too well. So Jess is going back to Maine, back to Cabot Cove. So we go to the train station for the 97th time. No, this is the first time back, right? This is the first she's trying to go back to Cabot Cove. No, she went and then roses. Oh my God, you're right. So this is time number two that she tries to go back. Yes. So Daniel's back, her her helper friend from the train, and she's chatting with him. And your favorite thing happens. What happens? Oh, Jessica! Jessica, no, Jessica, no, Jessica! Thank you, Kit Donovan who is played by Kelsey Manerick in today's performance. You are quite welcome. Yeah, Kit runs screaming in, which I thought this woman was great. I thought she was so genuine. She's like the most genuine scream queen we've had on Murder, <laughs> She Wrote. But she runs in and she says, Grady has been arrested. Again, first of many times we will hear this. And you can tell it's the first because Jess is panicked. And she's like, what for what? And Kit is like, suspicion of murder. And you don't even get like a funny look. Yep. Jess just like turns and runs. <laughs> and you said that this is where the first part ends, right? Yes, I believe it's somewhere around here. That makes sense. So we have in the first half, which viewers would have seen on the first Sunday night or like whenever this ran. They would have seen introduction to Jess and Cabot Cove, fun book tour stuff, romance blossoms, murder happens. Jess is mildly interested in solving the murder, but not that interested because she's leaving. And then the arrest of Grady really seals the deal. 
So we got all of that in episode one. Good job, Murder, She Wrote writers and performers and people filming. You're so welcome. So since this is where Murder, She Wrote left you when it originally aired, this is where we're going to leave you today. We did warn you multiple times that we're Murder, She Wrote nerds. And that we were going to take a very deep dive into the Murder, She Wrote world and its pop culture and storytelling. In today's episode, we had our very first murder of the series. Somebody shot Sherlock Holmes. We learned that in 80s New York City, 17th Street was terrifying for white New Yorkers. And that JV can whip up a stain removal recipe from almost anything. We asked important questions like, why is Grady still so incompetent? Or Kelsey, could he be a murdering genius? And does crime really not happen on Sundays in New Holving? Next week, we're going to follow JB around New York City as she gets mugged, breaks into buildings, and scares the living daylights out of everyone she knows by disappearing until midnight. So if you, like JB, think policing is too subjective and fraught with errors, please check out fortunesociety.org. They're a New York City-based nonprofit devoted to abolition and to providing all the resources folks might need for re-entry after imprisonment. That is fortunesociety.org. Thanks, Emily Rose. Thanks also to Daniel Arnold for our theme music. And thank you all for spending your time with us. Come nerd out with us on Twitter and Instagram at WWJBDpod or send us an email at wwjbdpod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I am Emily Rose. And I am Kelsey. And remember, the next time you find yourself in a quandary, just ask, what, what would, would JB, JB do? do?